When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 25th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll catch up with the NBA playoffs, where the Heat are up three games to one on the Pacers in the East. The Spurs have a two-to-one lead on the Thunder in the West, though OKC has been buoyed by the surprising return of the injured Serge Ibaka. We'll then be joined by our favorite documentarian, Jonathan Hawk, who's helming a series for ESPN called Inside U.S. Soccer's March to Brazil. We'll talk to John about the U.S. national team's prep for the World Cup and what went into coach Jurgen Klinsmann's decision to cut Landon Donovan from the roster. Finally, we'll discuss the mysterious origins of the Yips, the malady that leads golfers to lose their ability to putt, baseball players to stop being able to throw, and leaves musicians unable to play music. I'm joined in Washington, D.C. by Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, 
the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Do you ever re- just reach into the bag and you're just somehow just not able to pull out a tile? You just go in, you kind of pull, pull out, out, you go in again. Yeah. Yes? All the time. Happens every day. Every game. It's an affliction that Scrabble players just suffer in silence. But today, we're going to give them a voice. Hey, Mike. Hey. <laughs> it's the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. What do you uh, yip about, Mike? No, the same thing, pulling out a tile, but I'm uh, involved in uh, redoing my grotto. So it's a different <laughs> kind of tile. It's just uh, tile-based. A lot of tile, yeah. tile-based yipping. I'm on, having on some uh, fresco-oriented dis... What, what's the word he uses? Dystonia, maybe? Focal dystonia. Focal dystonia. Yeah, I'm having some uh, grotto dystonia. All right. Uh, Slate Plus, uh, I want to get in the plug for that. Um, if you are a Slate Plus subscriber, you can get uh, Dan Coyce and Willa Paskin's Great Game of Thrones uh, podcast. It's only available to Slate Plus members. Um, there was also a great discussion Willa did with the showrunners of the FX show The Americans, although I have not caught up, so don't tell me what Willa revealed. Um, you can also get bonus segments on Hang Up and Listen and other podcasts. And there's the recommendations engine where you'll get a great index of all the after we've ever done and all the endorsements on other podcasts. Um, Slate.com slash hangup plus is the link. You can get two weeks free if you want to just try out Slate Plus and see if you like any of that stuff. Um, okay. Unfortunately, and- it is a coal-fueled recommendations engine. We're working on that. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, environment. Recommendations, dystonia. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're working with our sports psychologists. On Monday night in Miami, the Heat cruised to a 102-90 win over the Indiana Pacers, led by LeBron James's 32-10-5 points, rebounds, and assists. Chris Bosh scored 25, the first game in the series that he scored in double figures. The Heat are now up 3-1 as the series heads back to Indiana. It's one of these series where you're grateful that you did not discuss it on a particular Monday when the Pacers were up one to nothing because uh, that commentary seems like it might have been uh, instantly outdated. Uh, Paul George of the Pacers, though, he says the officials are to blame for the mess that that Indiana finds itself in. He said after game four that the Pacers outplayed Miami. Perhaps uh, he was referring to a different game than basketball. I don't know. (laughs) But um, Indiana was called for 10 more fouls. The Heat made 30 of 34 free throws compared to just 11 of 17. Yeah, maybe he thought that the game was fouling uh, more aggressively and the Pacers did win. Um, Do you think that there's anything to the officiating accusations? I mean, it's obvious that basketball, the refs, I think, have more of an effect on the game uh, than in uh, baseball or football, for example. And it did seem like the the Heat were getting the calls. I'm not sure that's why they won, though. Yeah, obviously, Roy Hibbert's zero points could have easily been one or two had he had gotten more calls. You can't make the accusations after a wire-to-wire blowout, can you? You can. They They seem to have as much sense as using the words outplayed. I mean, if the Pacers have to say that and saying things... See, this is what happens when a team uh, unravels. And I guess they re-raveled a little bit more than at the end of the season. Mm, they did win the first game, so I'll give them credit for that. But when a team unravels, they try to re-ravel by saying things. And then the things are things like, you know, what Lance <laughs> Stevenson says and ridiculous statements like, we outplayed them. So they try to do with words, both for their own benefit and also maybe for, you know, the outside benefit, what they can't do with actions. And um, basically, it's incoherence being battled with verbal incoherence to try to get to a state of coherence, and that doesn't work. 
Well, we we generally like it when people talk about their feelings when they express them in words. <laughs> not 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 Donald Sterling. No. <laughs> there are exceptions to that. Right. People didn't like when Mark Cuban said he crosses the street if he sees a guy in a hoodie. They didn't like that. So we don't generally like it. We generally like it when they talk about their feelings and their feelings aren't ridiculous or offensive. <laughs> True. These were some kind of ridiculous feelings. What do you think, Stefan? Which feelings are we talking about? Whose feelings? There were a lot of feelings in this series. I think you should talk about your feelings. Maybe drive the conversation in a different direction if you choose. No, no, no. I want to talk about Lance Stevenson taunting LeBron James because I find that very, very funny. And I find Lance Stevenson is your guy. Lance Stevenson is my guy. Yeah. In high school, I did a piece uh, for The Atlantic about Lance Stevenson. Born ready, Sir Lancelot. He was talking about going to Europe rather than going to college, but then Cincinnati came through and gave him a scholarship and place to play for He's a, a really good player, and he's played well in the series. Um, he said that he wanted Dwayne Wade's knee to flare up. Uh, what did he say about LeBron? He said, uh, oh, he said that James's trash talk was a sign of weakness. Weakness. Who really cares that he said any of this stuff? I think that what was it, like three or, or four days between games that was a good filler. It provided a nice, like, uh, some nice condiments in between the uh, game three and game four bun, the Lance Stevenson trash talk. But nobody really cares about that, do they, Stefan? I think people care in as much as people read, and therefore it's something to... Oh, so you're saying they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's, something, it's something to do for four or five minutes. It's like a slate story that has the number of minutes that will take you to read it at the top. Right. Yeah, Lance minutes, Stevenson's minutes comments. Minutes to be outraged by. Yeah, comment, Lance Stevenson's comments took about 45 seconds to read. And it provides the easy prism, right? So LeBron doing so well was in response to the comments. Although Daily Dime, which I like from ESPN, contextualizes LeBron's performance as don't poke the king after enduring Lance Stevenson's weak comments. James silenced him with 32, 10, and 5. <laughs> and then a couple down, it says uh, this, stat check. LeBron James has now bested Michael Jordan's NBA record of putting at least 25, 5, and 5 assists. Jordan did it in 73 playoff games, and now James does it in 74. So he rose to the occasion and silenced Stevenson <laughs> with a, doing a thing that he has done more than anyone in the history of basketball. That's what I wanted to say about LeBron is that when he was criticized a few years ago, it was for inconsistency and... He is now certainly the most consistent player in the NBA. There are games when Kevin Durant, the deserving MVP, in these playoffs just didn't play very well, didn't shoot very well. And LeBron just <laughs> never doesn't play well. That is the definition of greatness in any sport. It's the equivalent of the Roger Federer 23 straight Grand Slam semifinal streak. I don't have like any numbers right now of like LeBron. I'm sure he's scored in double figures and a bajillion straight playoff games. But it's it's more just he's never playing out of control. He's never playing hero ball. Um, it's like we talked about the hot hand earlier uh, this year and the idea that players actually do get hot, but they kind of subvert the effect of it by taking shots of increasing difficulty, which makes it so that it's just more difficult even if they are in a hot streak. But with LeBron, You'll hear the announcer say, like, he's really got to take over here. Like, this is LeBron's time. And just when they say that, he'll just, like, drive in the lane and, like, dish it to Ray Allen for an open three-pointer. Or he'll the, drive in the lane and go hard to the basket and make it. But you don't get the sense that, that he he's doing anything ever, panicky. Or that he ever overestimates his ability. I mean, partly that's because it's hard for him to overestimate his ability because it's so vast. But 
when they need a basket, he often will generate one that's, you know, a better shot for one of his teammates than he could have for himself. And that was interpreted, I think, earlier in his career as a sign of weakness. But it's just like ex post facto now that they've won. People are like, oh, he just makes the right basketball play, which was the, you know, that's always been the correct interpretation. Right, because it always looks like he's not only making the right play, but he's making the sensible play and he makes it look effortless. You don't ever get the sense that LeBron is freaking out that he feels I have to do something to change the course of the game. He, he just was also biting his nails on the bench when they were up 20. So I think we can... He bites his nails all that, the time. We, we can know put that, that aside. We know as that a, he bites his nails, As a proxy, a as a proxy a of nervousness. But in their loss against Brooklyn, he was minus 14. I mean, come on. Let's not let him <laughs> off the hook that easily. Well, that's because Lance Stevenson was just saying, was being way too nice at that point. He needed... He needed the, the he king needed, needed to some be external motivation. Did you want to talk about the Paul George concussion and his uh, return... After a few days, he got kneed in the head by Dwayne Wade in game three. Dwayne Wade always injuring people and then came back for game four. It seems like the NBA might have a little concussion issue in terms of management. It seemed like Paul George came back into that game rather quickly. This was another case of, A, a team not being extra cautious with an athlete, um, and B, the case of relying on the player's word. Paul George admitted after the game that he blacked out, that he didn't remember what had happened after he got, you know, when he got hit in the, in, in the head by Dwayne Wade. But if you looked at the replays, you could see he was down. He was out. He didn't respond when his teammates first came over to him. Yeah, the prudent thing would be get, your, get him off of the sidelines, get him to the locker room, and don't risk his life. Um, don't risk his health. But this is not going to change for a long time in spite of all of the protocols. And um, But don't you think it should be a different standard in basketball, which is not football, where he's not like bashing his head against somebody immediately the next play? Or shouldn't play? the standard be a little bit – I mean, shouldn't the caution level be higher because it's so much more infrequent in basketball? Yeah, but Josh is saying that the uh, chance of recurrence just due to the what exactly you're saying, how rare it is, means that it is rare. So the chance of recurrence. Yeah, and it also seems work. like an exaggeration to say that his life is at risk. Well, potentially, if he goes out there and hits his head on the floor again, which could happen, hits his head on a stanchion, hits his head on a very hard elbow from one of those large men that play basketball for the other team. These things are all possible. But and anything's the, possible. Well, but the cautionary, but, but the medical caution with concussions is pretty clear cut that if you have a head injury that leaves you blacked out, you should not be returned to the game immediately because on the slim chance that you are hit again in the head, the risk of something bad happening escalates. Let me just uh, move on from the concussion to say that this series, these rounds of playoffs the conference finals has totally borne out my suspicion, which is I need to check out of them and just look at the final scores. And if I happen to catch a game, fine. There's been too much basketball drama. It's been great. I've been heavily invested in all these game seven game series in the first round and these amazing games in the next round. You need to take a round off and pause. Right? I agree. So this is my round off. I'm pausing. I totally round. agree with that. I think you expend so much basketball energy on the first round because there are so many games and this year they were all so good and so compelling yeah and this round is not as compelling right and i don't think the heat uh pacer series is going to be anything which is great the heat so let's pencil the heat into the finals and this is what they're playing in the pacers locker room in game seven piping hang up and listen through the locker room to get motivation <laughs> anyway the other one if you want to say hey you know that could get close when it does i'll totally be invested until well, that point i'm taking my pause you guys are are wrong eh but the second round was the round to skip nothing interesting happened in the second round and Going into this one, it was like, oh, well, we knew that this was 
going to be the the finals. I guess Clippers Thunder was was interesting. Yeah. So that and, wasn't the, the series is, to skip. But right, but I didn't but, skip it. But, and because yeah. of that, <laughs> I need I need to recharge my batteries. Sunk cost, dude. Just because you didn't skip the second round doesn't mean you should skip the conference uh, finals to make up for it. It's uh, it's bad thinking. So bad. far, it's going so well. But it there's is. there's sort of a college basketball feel to it. The first rounds, the first couple rounds are really exciting. We're invested. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And then there's that interregnum where big yeah. teams are playing big teams and it's not as compelling. And then the finals yeah. are compelling because of the finals. Let's talk about the Oklahoma City medical staff saying that Serge Ibaka is out for the playoffs. He only missed two games and now looks like his uh, calf is somehow supercharged. They won... Uh, by nine in game three, the Thunder, even it was not that close. And now they have a chance to uh, tie it at two in uh, game four. The Thunder uh, failed Tyson Chandler on his uh, physical 2009. That didn't really go well Go well for them. <laughs> I don't know if that was the same uh, medical personnel. There's been speculation about, you know, was this gamesmanship? You can play your theme song, Mike. Were they just like crazily wrong about this? Did uh, Serge Ibaka go to Germany and get some sort of procedure? Uh, That's what I was going to Procedure? Suggest. I think his mm-hmm. entire lower leg was spun. <laughs> leg spinning. Leg That's spinning. new. Yeah. But it makes a huge difference. The Thunder have been great against the Spurs for the last couple of years, precisely because of Ibaka, um, because he is able to you know, stop Tony Parker from getting easy baskets. And generally, I think man for man, the Thunder are younger and more athletic than the Spurs. And if you take Ibaka away, then that that really flips around. So I think if you were going to skip three games of the Western Conference Finals, Mike, you chose the right three. I would watch the next uh, the next three to four. I'm going to – well, I'll watch uh, Pivotal Game 4, which I'll get into. You know, it seems like a medical sk- staff can screw up in this direction, but if they screw up in the other direction, yeah, I'll be fine. Whoops, out for the series. That medical staff might be a new medical staff. Now, the same thing is going on in the uh, in the NHL where the Rangers have a player, Derek Stepan, who is, has a broken jaw, but none of, the, none of the Canadians believe he's actually out with a broken jaw. And if you read the Spurs comments, they're like, yeah, right, a Bach is out for the series. We know how this goes, you know? So I think that – Maybe it even ties in with the uh, with the concussion we were just talking about, you know, t- viewing injuries not as something that's actually dangerous to long term or even short term health, but just another aspect of the game. You know, it's like, how do we defend the high pick and roll and what do we do with this rumor of injury? You know, it, it is all part of gamesmanship and maybe seeing concussions as part of gamesmanship is uh, endangering the players. Shut down. That was the that was the dagger of conversation. <laughs> I'm not sure that they are viewed that way. I'm not sure that medical staffs will view them that way. I mean, these decisions are made. I mean, a decision like whether to put a player back in a game is made in the moment. Um, the player saying, I feel fine, I feel fine. They, give, they ask him the three questions, and they let him go back in. And then after the fact, they can say, oops, we should have taken him to the locker room. And then the league can say, oops, you should have taken him to the locker room, and, and, and some sort of punishment will come down. You know, the NBA, you're right, though. I was going to mention there was a, a piece on Forbes, and 538 did a piece about this, too. I mean, it's a very small sample size in the NBA. Apparently, there were only nine concussions all season, including the preseason. So there's not a lot of precedent for how these are handled. Paul George apparently was the fastest diagnosed player with a concussion to return after that game. What that means, I don't know. You know, game 
gamesmanship, just wanting to win the same old stories about, you know, teams in the in the fight in the moment, ignoring obvious symptoms so a player can get back on the court um, or back on the field. Same thing with the player himself. He wants to get back on the court, back on the field. But this is what we've been talking about for three, four, five years now in terms of how leagues have to re-educate everybody so that you don't put players at risk. I'm not convinced that this is an outrage, but I'm not saying it's an outrage. All right. It's a great then. Is that a dagger? That was more like uh, it was a butter knife. That was a butter. That was knife. like a really aggressive back scratcher. <laughs> All right, our sponsor this week is Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. With our special offer, you can get one of Audible's more than 150,000 titles for free. So many titles, so many to choose from. This week, I wanted to highlight uh, the Big Fix by Brett Forrest. I excerpted a piece from that on Slate a couple of weeks ago, and it is about. This humongous uh, match-fixing problem in international soccer and the efforts by FIFA, not uh, anyone's favorite international sportocratic organization, to try to stop it. So Brett interviewed you know, FIFA officials, referees, fixers. He's got kind of the whole story from all these different perspectives. And um, it's a pretty fascinating tale and one that uh, fans of sports gambling, intrigue, crime, crime, organized crime, all of the above will we'll love. Um, and thanks to Audible's great offer for Hang Up listeners. If you're in the United States, you never tried Audible before, you can get one free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial. You can get that audiobook in the 30-day free trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. That's audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. I am now pleased to welcome in our friend and our favorite sports documentarian, Jonathan Hawk. We've had John on Hang Up many times before to talk about his films, The Best That Never Was, Unguarded, and Off the Res, among others. Now he has been uh, working with ESPN on a series called Inside U.S. Soccer's March to Brazil. Two episodes have already aired. The next two will be on this Thursday. The first will look at how Jurgen Klinsmann chopped the roster down from 30 to 23 including a decision not to include the U.S. men's team's all-time leading scorer, Landon Donovan. The second episode on Thursday will be about Tuesday night's pre-World Cup uh, tune-up game against Azerbaijan. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. Very nice to be back. And it's been a very, very exciting, eventful last couple of days in uh, U.S. soccer world. Um, So let's start with... Landon Donovan. There was a hint in uh, the opening episodes that Klinsman did not see Donovan as a sacred cow, and I wanted to play that clip now. Landon Donovan, you know, the media thinks he's untouchable. The media thinks he has to be in the starting lineup or he has to be in Brazil. Based on what he did, and he did marvelous for soccer in the United States over the last 12, 14 years. Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is tonight again! But it's not how it works. You know, I have to choose the best 23 players um, based on what I see today. Okay, so we hear that, uh, John, coming out of the coach's mouth, but it was still a shock when Donovan didn't make the cut. So did you see this coming? Uh, Did the other players on the 30-man or 23-man roster see this coming? I don't think anybody saw it coming, and I don't think anybody expected it then. Jurgen had played it very much like he was going to take the full 
time that FIFA allows to finalize the 23-man roster uh, from the 30-man provisional roster that they take into camp. Uh, I think the deadline was June 2nd. He was giving every indication that he was going to take that whole time. So no one was expecting it, including us. The crew had just had taken a couple of days off and had come back that morning, filmed practice. Interestingly, Landon was the last one to leave the field, but nobody knew that that was the last time they were practicing at 30. Um, everybody grabbed lunch, and then the press director, Michael Cameron from U.S. Soccer, grabbed our field producer, Jim Potteritz, and cameraman, Alistair Christopher, and said, Jurgen's going in to talk to the guys. So they ran in, and guys were playing ping pong and sort of hanging out, and Jurgen walked into the room and said, well, it's a big day. And there were only 23 guys in the room, so it was pretty obvious quickly what was happening, but it was very much a surprise. The comments of uh, especially the veterans seemed really shocked and hurt. Is there a way, you know, you would also expect them to say all the right things without it necessarily being inflected with emotion. What kind of sense did you get among, uh, between guys like Tim Howard or some of the guys who've been on the team a long time based on the news? Well, I think Clint Dempsey and Tim Howard and Michael Bradley, being a professional football player in Europe, you deal with really difficult situations, a really, really antagonistic press, a really unhealthily involved rooting public that is really in your shorts all the time. And, and I think they're pretty hardened to it. Michael said to us this week, after the initial shock, he said, look, you know, Landon's kind of been in and out of the team the last three years anyway. So... It's not like we don't know how to play without him. But I think what was really interesting being around the guys was that they, the younger guys, were very deferential to Landon, even you know, when our cameras were around, sort of everybody you could see looking at Landon to see if Landon was okay with it before they were okay with it. Because this kind of all-access stuff is very unusual in soccer particularly European soccer. It's almost always unallowed. You know, the Liverpool thing they did was was a very controlled environment, and, and the players hated it. And, you know, soccer players really hate this. But Landon was very much the focal point of the younger players on the pitch and off the pitch when they were together as groups. So I think, in an odd way, the younger guys are the ones who who may have taken it harder. And ultimately, the argument on whether he, Landon Donovan should have been on this team or not, it's complicated. I wrote about it for Slate. I think that there are, var- there are variables and intangibles here that would argue in favor of Landon Donovan being on the team. There's an argument to be made that he is certainly older. His skill level has receded a little bit. The added value of Landon can be made up by other players who have a little bit more to offer in specific positions. If you want to read some really good discussion about this, go to the Shin Guardian blog. They have the, the commenters there really thoughtful and intelligent. But ultimately, I think it comes down to this notion that it feels like there's something personal here and that Jurgen Klinsmann, from the time he took over this team, has talked a lot about changing the culture of soccer in the United States, emphasizing the need to think in a more European way about 
about your career, about who you play for, about waiting for the day when there will be a completely engaged fan base the way there is in Europe. And that's when these kinds of decisions will resonate even more. At the same time, it feels like there's a disconnect with the way U.S. soccer really is now. And I wonder in your shooting of Klinsman over the last month or two, how do you sort of see his adaptation to the U.S. and this recognition that we are different? You know, leaving Landon Donovan on the, off the roster is going to alienate a lot of fans. Well, I think he felt from the beginning, um, we showed a clip in the first episode of his press conference when he was appointed the coach in, um, in 2011. And what he said was that every soccer nation has an identity that they take onto the pitch with them. That is an identity that's derived of their culture. Jurgen's a very smart guy. He's a very thoughtful person. He's not an impulsive person. So I kind of agree with you, the sense that there is and always has been something personal between him and Landon that hasn't been good, and it might harken back to Germany, as you made reference to in, in your story, Stefan. I think Jurgen is very philosophical about his mission here, and he's trying to enforce this vision, but the vision, it's interesting. I have a quote from him from an interview we did with him in L.A. before we went up to uh, Palo Alto. I want to read it to you because I think it's really interesting. Jurgen says, America is multi-diverse. Mike, you think that's a word, multi-diverse, in the first place? I don't know. (laughs) It seems seems a redundancy, but okay. (laughs) America is multi-diverse. It is very international. It is very dynamic. It's bossy because you want to be the number one in the world. So all those things, you know, diversity, energetic, aggressive, attacking, is part of the way you play the game then. That's just the way it is. So you build this into this kind of development of an identity of a soccer team because you want the American fans and the bigger population also to kind of connect with that team. We want to take the game to them. We want to play on a higher tempo. And this is a process, so that process will take years, but it's a doable process and a fascinating one. So this is a problem he set himself to in 2011, and here we are in May 2014, a month before the World Cup, and he's starting to answer that question. What is the American soccer identity? Okay, Jurgen has decided now that it's dynamic, it's bossy, it's assertive, and take the game to them, play on a higher tempo. So if you listen to this, you understand why he doesn't see Landon Donovan as part of that team. I don't want to sound like a stupid American with soccer, making analogies to other sports so we all understand it, but I think it's it's apt is that it's almost as if he took a team that was playing the Princeton offense, a basketball team playing the Princeton offense, and on the eve of the NCAA tournament, he, he says he wants to be Loyola Marymount, and he changes his roster so that He's got all these speedy guys that are going to be racing up and down the wings and, uh, you know, and making life hell in the Amazon for Portugal by running for 90 minutes. But there's, there's kind of an arrogance to that because it assumes something that might be applicable in 10 or 20 years when the development pool expands far beyond what it is now. But given the practical realities of where we are now, and I think this is going to be the litmus test for Klinsman's performance in Brazil, is that realistic? Is that a realistic way to play Portugal and Germany and Ghana in the first round of the World Cup? And if you're the fan base, do you want to 
see development or do you want to try to win? I mean, we assume that Jurgen Klinsmann wants to win and he has faith in the 23 players. But there is something that is forward looking, as you articulated from Jurgen's quote. I think Jurgen does want to win now very much. He's, he has said to us whether he means it, you know, you have to make your own decision about that as a viewer or a listener. But he has said to us that he knows that he will be judged by these three games. And if the team fails, he will be the one to take the blame, and he will be the one who's uh, possible or likely to lose his job over it. I'm not sure if his contract's guaranteed and that has anything to do with it for 2018, but it might be that he is honest with himself and sees that these three games at this draw is a lost cause, even playing the typical American style. So he's going to roll the dice on sprinting 90 minutes in the heat and trying to trying to get a few goals. John, at a low moment in qualifying, there was a story by Brian Strauss in the Sporting News with anonymous sniping from American players. We don't know which uh, players they were. And one of the complaints was about factionalization or clicks on the team, that the German-Americans stated themselves. Um, Klinsmann's German, they kept a bunch of Germans who were on the kind of edge of the roster, Julian Green, uh, John Brooks, Timmy Chandler, who all uh, made it. Is there any kind of factionalization or clicks on the team? Um, Is there resentment of the German players or is there a recognition that, you know, these guys do deserve to be here and it's actually good to expand our, our talent pool and we're all, you know, wearing the same jersey? There is some factionalization. I don't think it's like the Sharks and the Jets and the Hostel, you know. I think it's it's kind of natural for people to stay around people who speak their first language. Um, the other day, the guys gathered in the hotel bar to watch the Champions League final, and it was a 50-50 group that was there, although it was kind of the Germans sitting to one side and the Americans sitting to the other. But I think there were some eyebrows raised at the amount of screen time that Julian Green got in the first episode when he when we were filming in Frankfurt and he joined the team. I think there were some players who were annoyed about that because, you know, here's a guy who had never taken the pitch for the U.S. and here are other guys who have had great, you know, contributions to qualifying over the years and, and didn't see the screen at all. So, you know, Jurgen has this belief that is very deeply rooted that, you know, one may disagree with, but he believes it, that the way kids come up in Europe, both with the manner in which they play and the kind of vision they have on the pitch, plus the psychology they have, which is a total consumption of their lives by soccer. I think that may be what irked him the most about Landon, is that Landon who had been this, you know, child star and who had had been a a soccer child in the way we we look at tennis children, who later in his career had really become much more mature, much more interested in in the greater world and seeing his place on the planet as something more than a footballer. I admire that about Landon. I think a lot of us do. I I think Jurgen hated that about him. To Jurgen, it was a weakness. You know, maybe he's right. All right. Thanks, John. We'll be watching later this week, and hopefully the uh, drama surrounding the team will be the good kind that one one gets excited about because they're scoring lots of goals. Let's hope so. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, guys.
John Hawk is a documentary filmmaker, and he's co-producer of ESPN's Inside, U.S. Soccer's March to Brazil. For our last topic of the day, there's an article in last week's New Yorker by David Owen about the yips. In the news business, we like to have news pegs for things, but there's no actual uh, peg that I could discern. People are in playing the story. golf. People continue to play golf. People have had the yips. Um, it's the New Yorker, man. They just do what they do. They're just New Yorkering it up and the information and all up came in this piece. together at this point. Yeah, yeah. We we could have waited a couple of weeks for the U.S. Open, but you know what? We're just going to drop this right now. So it was a great piece. Um, it goes through the history of people who have suffered from this. Tommy Armour, um, the golfer, is credited with coining the term. He defined it as a brain spasm that impairs the short game. Johnny Miller was afflicted by it, among other golfers. Rick Ankeel, Chuck Knobloch, Steve Sachs, Steve Blass in Major League Baseball, darts players, cricket players, snooker players, and musicians. That was the fascinating thing in the story, that uh, the connection between musicians and athletes all suffering from this uh, affliction. Uh, Mike, what did you make of the piece? Well, I thought the piece was excellent um, because he brought in the different sports and focal dystonia, which is what musicians call the yips. And so what he was trying to do is uh, present a framework where we think of it differently. And I guess the the real retrograde way of thinking of it is some sort of weakness, some sort of mental weakness. And then he goes choking. through... Yeah, choking. And there's a lot specifically addressed why it's different from choking. I don't know if the people who say it's different from choking actually would say, well, here's a definition of choking. Like maybe they just say there is no such thing as choking. So we got a lot more information about specifics, like it affects the the dominant hand or the right hand or the right arm more than the left hand and weird experiments where the yips would stop happening or little tricks that snooker players used where are they focusing on the ball? Are they focusing on their cue? Are, they, are their eyes flitting back and forth? And yet, and this is not to the discredit of the piece, it doesn't add up to, and so here's what we do about the yips. In fact, it doesn't really even come close to that. There's tantalizing research and research that if you never cared about anyone becoming a better putter or successfully making a throw from second to first, even if you didn't care about that, there's compelling stuff. But I still think they've raised a lot of good issues and we know it's not purely mental weakness, but there's a long way to go. And the second thing I'd say is, by providing a way of talking about what the yips are, by providing specifics as to where this occurs in the body, it seems like the researchers, and maybe the author David Owen, was distancing himself or distancing us from the notion that the yips are a psychological malady. And yet, can't that just be the physical manifestations of this psychological malady? That's exactly the conclusion that I came to, is that researchers have identified that there are these involuntary nervous system related muscle movements that lead to the yips and the yips in a more sort of specific way are in putting, for instance, standing over the ball about to strike it and two nerves fire in your wrist that oppose each other and cause a muscle spasm that at the moment of impact pushes the ball one way. What was unanswered is what's the connection between the brain and the muscles? What causes it? And researchers just don't know. And Owen talks to Parkinson's researchers. He talks to 
um, sports psychologists. He watches some of these experiments where people are hooked up to all kinds of devices from uh, electroencephalograms to these uh, motion capture gloves. They putt from different distances. They perform different acts. I mean, the one that I loved was where they had people putt from three, five, and eight feet and then ask them afterward, um, you know, what do you think? And they'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the yips there. And then they go look at the measurements and they were like all over the place. They were yipping on every putt. So while there's no definitive conclusion, it does seem to me, I mean, the link I made was that at some point in your life, something happens in your brain that leads to this physical change, this muscular nervous change that causes these spasms and causes you to be unable to perform a task that is completely ingrained in you. I mean, Chuck Knobloch didn't have problems throwing from second base to first base for the first 30 years of his life. And then suddenly he was unable to do it. The Mayo Clinic surveyed golfers and found that 50%, 52% reported having the ifs. That seems crazy. That's a, that's a huge number. But I bet a lot um, of those people think they have, and it's a way of justifying being a bad putter or a bad <laughs> chipper. Oh, I've got the yips. Um, there might not be any physical manifestation uh, when they're hooked up. Sports Illustrated did a piece on uh, the baseball version of this in the early 90s, and what's striking is the kind of different moments when this uh, arises for people. Dale Murphy, I think, when he was a catcher, he was moved from from that position because he had trouble throwing to second base. He said that it was a bad throw that just made him think about the act in a way that became unproductive and it just snowballed and led to other bad throws. Mike Stanley said that it was because he became obsessed with uh, the stolen base percentage of his opponents. And he just got kind of caught up with that. And um, that led him to start lollipopping throws. There was Ryan Zimmerman. This wasn't obviously covered in a story written before Ryan Zimmerman made the major leagues. But he had a shoulder injury. He changed his throwing motion. He developed problems throwing the first base. Um, With Steve Sachs, it seemed like his manager, Tommy Lasorda, was like, dude, Everybody in the world can make this throw. Why can't you do this? What is your problem? Which seemed like it well, was. You would say it really, a little nicer, right? <laughs> while while eating a plate of lasagna, but <laughs> yeah, but that seems that seems crazily unhelpful. But and the and the Yankees didn't want to know about the researcher, you like the top researcher quoted in the piece. The Yankees were uninterested in hearing right. And what's that to me? What that piece showed was the evolution that sports have made and the willingness to embrace science in the last twenty five years. That we've gone from a culture where the Yankees didn't want to hear from the head of neurology from a New York hospital who had a theory on why Steve's on, on why Chuck Knobloch couldn't throw to first base, and now teams are commissioning this kind of research and sports are commissioning this kind of stuff to understand better what causes athletes to perform at suboptimal levels. And the connection to musicians is fascinating because you can certainly connect the performance anxiety from sports to music. You can connect the just unbelievable amount of training that you have to go to, the um, specifics of the task that you have to learn. But you just don't really think of athletes and musicians as being that's similar. At least I hadn't thought of it um, in that way. But, you know, I guess it makes sense that they would, you know, have a similar reaction. And it just makes you wonder if, you know, we should just talk about certain musicians not being clutch. I think that that, that that's a concept that we need to export. 
yeah. to our reviews of uh, classical. But it's and it's uh, a lot of classical pianists. Axel Rose is definitely the Dennis Rodman of musicians. Um, actually, most musicians are the Dennis Rodman of musicians. And another interesting thing, he went back in time and talked about you know Scrivener's hand and writing writing cramp, which I thought was literally just a writing cramp. I didn't know that people would have this psychological or you know quasi psychosomatic uh, malady. Another really interesting thing, wasn't exactly sure what to make of this, but he talked about the blind golfer who gets aligned based on where her guide says to go, and especially this one who makes putts at a much higher level than anyone on the PGA Tour. Her like putts per green is something like... One and a half. Than, yeah, one and a half. So I didn't know how to contextualize that, or is she playing easier greens? It seems impossible that a blind golfer is outputting everyone on the PGA Tour, but apparently she is. And what does that have to do with the yips? I don't know. <laughs> Should we do it blindfolded? Maybe. She makes a line in her brain, and then right. she just moves her putter back and forth on it, the researcher told David Owen. The link in a lot of the, the yip behavior is that it occurs during these stationary activities. Well, not a lot. Like all the sports, you know, right. shooting and snooker and all that all start, even the yip aspect of basketball, shooting a free throw, it all starts from a dead stop. From a dead stop. It's and not instinctual. the tennis is the serve. It's is the not serve, right. like during a rally. And right. Or, or right, returning a lob. Right. I think he also said that right. in tennis. Right. Yeah. So it's when the brain does have a split second, as little as a split second, to pause, or the physical the physical activity pauses for a second before you have to begin the one that causes the yip. So in the case of throwing to second base, you catch the ball, and then there is that moment where you stop and you have a moment to think about what the, the next act is. Again, that sort of says that there is a, a, a link between the thought process and the physical manifestation of it, doesn't it? Right. And it seems like just the diagnostic history of this or just the history of how this is written about, it's kind of grappling with the idea of whether this is or is not mental weakness or whether it's a reaction to stress. And do people who suffer the yips, are they under more stress or do they just react to stress differently? And also just is it unfair is it cruel to say that somebody does suffer from mental weakness um, or is it just an accurate diagnosis i mean that's kind of what right is there no both. way to prevent <laughs> right <both>. yeah <laughs> or is there no way to prevent the manifestation of bad thoughts for a simple act that snowball and lead to a point where you just can't do I something. Will, I will say that this story like really stressed me out. I hope this does not happen to me. It seems like a really horrible thing. Josh has Writer's having, cramp. Yeah. Josh has been having is there, trouble. Is there a typing cramp? That would be bad. I don't want that. If there's a podcasting cramp, I'm doing <laughs> You're screwed. But then Jessica. there's the other thing. Like if we should look at the yips as something to be understood and something that uh, should not be disdained, I, I suppose we do. But, you know, what about the aspect of having just a really strong mentality? I mean, what if this is a continuum, right? What if every mental aspect of the game could be, uh, you could point to the uh, the wire in your brain, as Johnny Miller referred to, and some people have a stronger wire and some people have a worse wire. And the more we begin to understand the wire, then we more we discount the age-old attitudes of, you know, mental fortitude, which I think that there is something 
there's something important about having mental fortitude. And I'm not arguing for, you know, the mystery is leeching out of what we consider awesome and heroes and sports sportsmen. But this did get me thinking about all that. And then I stopped suddenly and thought on a different course because I had a mental yip. Except that you also have to stipulate that anyone who reaches the level of a Johnny Miller or a Chuck Knobloch or a champion snooker player is presumed to have that mental fortitude because we yeah. know now that you can't just make it on some physical talent. It takes a lot of perseverance and strength, emotional strength to get as far as any professional athlete gets. And so yeah. we assume that that's inherent, that that's physically built in to our best athletes. And then when we see them fail at these simple tasks, we're just completely snookered. snookered. That's no, you're right. That's a better way to look at it. Look at it, the yips like um, a, a leg injury. And we wouldn't say, well, you know, not having a leg injury is part of athleticism. Like, look at a guy who can putt and then all of a sudden he can't and say, all right, this is a weird deviation from his true athletic self. Right. All right. Let's uh, do afterballs. And on the Wikipedia list of people who've suffered from focal dystonia, I want to highlight the Greek guy because that'll lead to superior pronunciations here. That one, Stefan. Apostolos Parasquevas. Tell, uh, tell the listeners about Apostolos. Apostle. Greek-American classical guitar composer was struck by focal dystonia. Did we define focal dystonia? Let's define focal dystonia. Focal dystonia, involuntary movements that affect specific actions made by specific parts of the body. All right, so Apostolo. Greek-American classical guitarist composer was struck by focal dystonia to his right hand in 2009. He fully recovered in 2013 after 7,000 hours of personal work in reconstructing his technique. That's a Malcolm Gladwell article in the making. So it's Apostolo? Apostolos. 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 Mike, what is your... Apostolos. My Apostolos is... Did I get it right? No. Yeah. My Apostolos. Just say shush instead of... No, sure. Sir. No, sir. Don't say shush. Apostolos. Apostolos. Good. My Apostolos is about the pivotal game three. CBS Sports hyping. Watch Heat versus... Actually, why would they want you to watch it? Follow along on CBSSports.com. Heat versus Pacers as they play a pivotal game three. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, every if game three is pivotal, then game four is crucial. Then when we get to game seven, people will definitely die at the end. So how <laughs> pivotal is game three? I know that there's uh, an imperative to get you to log on to CBS Sports and so forth. I looked this up. There's a site, an invaluable site called whowins.com. This site is not updated that much, and and uh, it's you know not that complex a site. I go to it like 12 times a year, especially when I was a full-time sports reporter. It's like if you have an old tool in a toolbox that you bought for $8, like a really awesome Allen wrench, and you use it again and again. But it has every statistic about all the histories of Game 7s. So in the NBA, all-time, historical series victory probability, going from one tied at one, which is about a 50-50, to up two games to one. So if you go up two games to one in the NBA, you have an 88.6% chance of winning the series if you had home court advantage, if you go up to one. If you were a visitor, however, so if you were the visiting team, if you don't have home court advantage and you go up to one, the winning probability is only 67%. Interesting. Since this was a Game 3 in the conference finals, let's look at that. In the history of the NBA, a team that goes up two games to one in the conference finals has a 79% chance of winning. 
which breaks down to the team with home court advantage an 84% chance of winning and the visiting team a 70% chance of winning. So in this series, Miami did go up 2-1. They were the visiting team or they did not have home court. So they supposedly have a 70% chance of winning, but now they're up 3-1. But that is just what happened. What about the sort of platonic ideal of the most important games in a seven-game series? In a post, Neil Payne on Basketball Reference did the math, and he found every seven-game series in a 2-2-1-1-1 format. He also did 2-3-2 for the finals, because that's the kind of guy he is. And he sort of uh, ranked the pivotality of different games. So as you can imagine, a game seven is the most pivotal game, because if you win, you win. So what he did was he found out the probability of winning an entire series if you're up to one, the probability of losing an entire series if you're up to one. He calculated in the strength of home court advantage, which gives you about a 3% advantage, and just assumed every team playing was a coin. So every team has an exact 50% chance of beating the other team. So he took out how good the teams were and just tried to focus on how pivotal the game was. So the most pivotal games, like I said, are going to be a game seven. And they go down the list. Game six are next important. Game five, nothing that shocking. However, game three, the so-called pivotal game three, some game threes, when the series is tied 1-1, are more pivotal than some game fours. For instance, both of the game threes, when the series is tied 1-1, there's about a 20% swing in terms of if you'll win the series, if you win game three or if you lose game three. That's when it's tied 1-1. But when one team is leading two games to none, then the swing becomes 0.125. So what that means is even though game three between the Heat and the Pacers couldn't be called pivotal, really, it was in fact more pivotal than game three in the Spurs-Thunder series because the Spurs were already up two games to one. Other interesting findings here is that Certain game twos are more pivotal than certain game threes. Yeah, in fact, all game twos are more pivotal than all game threes in which the series is two games to none. Game three, I don't think should be called pivotal, but it's a little more pivotal than I gave it credit for. But some of those game twos were a lot more pivotal than we ever thought. Pesca Pivotality Index. You know, in a three-game series, game three is extremely pivotal, Mike. Yeah, some, unless, unless one team goes up to nothing. Then it doesn't, it seems not to matter at all at that point. <laughs> Stefan, what's your... Apostolos. Apostolos. 20 years ago, the New York Jets took the field at training camp, wearing jersey number one was 25-year-old Tony Mayola, who once sported a mullet. At that point, he was wearing a ponytail. And a few weeks earlier, he had goal-kept the United States to the second round of the World Cup on home soil. Mayola hadn't played American football since he was 12, but he said he had dreamt about kicking in the NFL. After the World Cup, other teams passed on overtures from his agent. The Jets, though, signed him after a one-hour tryout in which he made a bunch of field goals and kicked the ball off inside the five-yard line, which was pretty good because the league had just moved that season, was moving the kickoff line from the 35 back to the 30. The Jets gave Mayola a $7,000 bonus. His signing was a rare opportunity. We're bringing in a guy who has competed at the highest level of sports, said head coach Pete Carroll, who would be fired after just one season. Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times wrote, The Jets not only want Mayola to kick off, but they also see him as a potential place kicker of the future. In fact, this is looking less and less like a publicity stunt. Mayola signed a lot of autographs. He learned a lot about kicking from the actual kicker in camp, Nick Lowry, who at the time had the most accurate field goal percentage in league history. As I can attest, kicking a football 
rather different from kicking a soccer ball. Mayola could kick the round ball 65 yards off the ground. But his approach to kickoffs was a mess. His hang times were poor. And when the Jets discovered they were using the wrong size tee, the tee was only supposed to be an inch high that year, but the Jets uh, were giving him an inch and three-eighths size tee. Once they figured that out, his distance started to wane. Lowry said Mayola entered camp with 35 variables in his kicking motion. After a few days, his teammates nicknamed him Captain Hook. Carroll was doing in New York what he would do rather more successfully two decades later in Seattle trying to keep things fun and comparatively humane. Mayola was signed, ESPN wrote in a pre-Super Bowl story in January, as a way to break up the monotony of training camp, and Carroll used Mayola that way. After practice, he had players take penalty kicks against him. Mayola did kick off five times in the preseason. Lowry did say that he had improved a lot, that his variables had dropped, and that he could be an NFL kicker in a couple of years. The Jets cut him, gave him a bag of footballs, told him to practice. Major League Soccer was still two years away. Tony apparently didn't practice much. He played indoor soccer and appeared off-Broadway in Tony and Tina's wedding. And then... Well, I'm going to let funny person Judah Friedlander tell the rest of the story. Friedlander last year hosted something called MLS Storytime Theater. One of the two-minute vignettes was the equivalent of this afterball. The shorts were produced by our friend John Hawk. Friedlander is narrating John's men's national team ESPN series. In 1994, John was working for NFL Films, mostly as an editor and writer, but also as a cameraman because he wanted to learn how to shoot. John invited me to join him on the field as his tape runner for a Jets preseason game where we watched as Miola slipped and fell during a kickoff. So this all has a nice circle of life feeling. Anyway, Tony Miola got cut by the Jets. But don't be sad for Tony. In 1996, Tony finally got a league of his own when MLS opened for business. And in 2000, Tony hoisted the MLS Cup for the Kansas City Wizards, which by last count is one championship trophy more than the Jets have won since they let Tony go. Coincidence? Not sure, but it's a fact. Go watch MLS Storytime Theater. It's pretty funny. Josh, what's your apostolos? Didn't even need to look at the paper for that. No. Apostolos on the brain. Okay, hang up, listeners. As you're about to hear, I had this whole afterball thing. I went on this long rant about Letitia Romero, the Kansas State women's basketball player, about how the school wouldn't release her. As occasionally happens in the world, things changed after I recorded the podcast. Uh, Kansas State is now releasing her and allowing her to transfer. Letitia Romero has been freed. So uh, you can listen to this afterball with that knowledge embedded in your brain. But keep in mind, the NCAA is still terrible. Okay, enjoy. I wrote earlier this month about the case of Letitia Romero the basketball player who's been trying like hell to transfer away from Kansas State. The capsule version goes like this. Romero played her freshman year at Kansas State. All of the coaches who recruited her got fired. She decided to transfer to another school, but the K-State Athletic Department denied her permission to contact any of the 94 schools she listed as potential landing spots. That meant she couldn't get a scholarship at any of those schools for at least one year, Kansas State Athletic Director John Curry hinted that he was concerned that the school's former coaching staff, the ones that he had fired, were shopping Romero around to try to get coaching offers at other schools, an accusation which Romero denies. Anyhow, after a huge amount of pressure from the media, Curry reconsidered allowing Romero to transfer. Now the university is saying that the decision by the school's appeals committee is final and binding, 
and there is no university procedure to re-examine one of those decisions. And that's pretty funny because now it turns out that due to a clerical error, Kansas State accidentally gave Romero a release to one of the 94 schools, Middle Tennessee State. They tried to retract the permission, but the NCAA told the school that it wasn't allowed to. It was binding. Ha ha ha. So forget the debate about paying college athletes. There's no better example than this one of how Division I sports programs treat their players like chattel. It is totally crazy that a college athlete needs permission from her former school, one that will likely be pissed off that she's leaving, to get a scholarship at another university. But that is not all. Even if Romero did get permission to contact whatever school she liked, she would still have to sit out a year before playing basketball again. That's something that we've kind of come to accept. You just have to sit out a year if you want to transfer. That's the rule. We don't really think about it. Um, But what's the basis for that? The one-year waiting period is required only in a few NCAA sports, football, baseball, men's ice hockey, and men's and women's basketball. And according to the NCAA, that's because these sports are, and I will quote here, historically academically underperforming. That is an absolute 100% lie. That is not the reason why you're not allowed to transfer. The year off rule has nothing to do with allowing anyone to settle in academically. It's designed, as we all know, it's pretty obvious, to prevent free agency and the most popular highest revenue sports, to discourage players from leaving their schools, to create more familiar, stable rosters for fans, to give coaches more control over incoming and outgoing talent. Coaches like Michigan's John Beeline have admitted explicitly that none of this has to do with academics. He said that he puts restrictions on transfers within the Big Ten Conference because he doesn't want his players to give away the Wolverines playbook. That doesn't particularly have anything to do with academics. So I would challenge the NCAA. I'm challenging them during this afterball. It's an afterball challenge. Release the data that show in particular that women's basketball is historically academically underperforming. In 2012, the Institute for Diversity and Ethics, that's uh, Richard Lapchick's group, they reported that the schools in the women's NCAA basketball tournament had an 88% graduation rate and that every single team in the tournament graduated at least 50% of its players. Lapchick said, women's teams continue to achieve at this high rate, pointing out that this is a historic academic overperformance by women's basketball teams and players. So how can the NCAA possibly call women's basketball historically academically underperforming? How can they demand that players under this rationale sit out a year before playing again? That, in conclusion, is the 4,000th reason why the NCAA is insane. Free Letitia Romero. We love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcast. Leave us a comment and a rating when you're there as well. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. And subscribe to us on Slate Plus. The link for that is slate.com slash hangupplus. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.